Today, we're going to continue in our series on the life of David, the shepherd king. Uh, today, we're going to introduce you to a man named Mephibosheth. I've got his name on the screen, Mephibosheth. It's an interesting name. And uh, we're going to talk more about this name and give you some definition a little bit later. But Mephibosheth, I want you guys to say it with me, okay? Just say it out loud, Mephibosheth. I, I can't hear you. I'm deaf. I'm 80% deaf. That means you've got to be 80% louder. All right, go with me. Come on, Mephibosheth. All right, now, you did good. Y'all did good. Now, I want you to say it three times really fast. Okay, y'all were terrible, okay? Uh, so, so you're going to offer me some grace today as I preach this sermon while I talk about Mephibosheth. And I'm sure at some point I'm going to get my tongue tied and, you know, you know how it is, okay? Well, we're in this series. Last week we talked about David, the 15 years of waiting. He was anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16, and then 15 years later, 20 chapters later, in 2 Samuel 5, he became king. So what we're at in the story now is we're at the end of that waiting period. Now, David has no idea that it's about to come to an end, but that's where we're at. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 3, there's a big battle that's happening between Israel and the Philistines. And sadly, the Israelites lost the battle. And even worse, King Saul and Jonathan were both killed in this battle. And so we kind of step into chapter 4, chapter 3 and chapter 4 all coming together, the timeline right there. Chapter 4, we're introduced we introduced for the first time this man named Mephibosheth. I said man, this boy named Mephibosheth. We look at chapter 4 and verse 4. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. And then it tells you how it happened. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him. And he became crippled. Imagine, uh, you're five years old. You're out playing in the courtyard, having a good day. You're doing what all royal kids do. And then all of a sudden, the palace doors bust wide open. And pandemonium, it's happened everywhere. There's panic. People are screaming and hollering. And things are going, all, things are going crazy all at once. And people are saying, well, what's going on? And they say that your dad and your granddad has been killed in battle. And that's a bad start to any five-year-old kid. Right? That's a bad day right there. But it gets worse. They're all in a panic because David was on his way to the palace to assume the throne, to be the next king. And what happens? 
Y'all know what happened. What, you know, what happens when a, a, a monarchy, a family change in a monarchy? And what happened to the old family? They, they're wiped out. Right? They're dead. They, they go after, you know, anyone that connected to that family. You know, brothers, you know, sisters, aunt, uncles, you know, uh, cousins, cousins, the third cousin twice removed, I don't know, whatever, college roommates, they, they just take them all out. It's a bad day for everybody. And it's specifically, it's a real, real bad day for Mephibosheth because he supposedly is supposed to be the next guy in, to be the king after Jonathan. He's next in line. So, so I'm sure Mephibosheth, you know, he's he confused here. He's a five-year-old kid. And, and he hears that David is coming to, to take everybody out. And to him, you know, David was a hero. To him, you know, David, he grew up watching David. He's the champion of the Israelite army. You know, he, he's the man. If it was modern day, you know, Mephibosheth would have had a poster of David in his bedroom. I mean, this is, this is how he is, what David's probably thinking about David. He, he's also, he also would have known that he was Jonathan's best friend, his dad's best friend. He probably was very close to David, almost like an honorary uncle. He probably took him out hunting. He probably showed him how to kill a bear and a lion. He probably showed Mephibosheth, you know, how to use a slingshot. Probably showed him all this stuff. And so Mephibosheth is thinking, you know, my dad's dead. My, my grandfather's dead. But David, you know, it's going to be okay. He's coming. And I know it's not going to be okay. He's going to kill you. You're dead, Mephibosheth. We got to get out of here. It's a lot for a kid to take in. They're in this panic, right? And in the middle of this panic, the nurse picks them up and begins to run. And somehow, we don't know how, but somehow the nurse drops him. And his leg, his leg, both legs, they're broken. And they don't have time to put him in a splint. They don't have time to put him in a cast. They don't have time for any medical treatment. They just kind of pick him back up. And they ran. And they got as far away as possible to a little remote village called Lodabar. We're going to talk about Lodabar in just a little bit. So his dad gone. His grandfather's gone. David, who he thought he could trust, is trying to kill him. His whole world is turned upside down. His legs are broken. He's taken to a remote place where he was in a beautiful palace. Now he's not in the palace no more. His world has been flipped upside down. Let me ask you, have you ever had a Mephibosheth moment? Yeah? Well, your whole world, your whole world is a flip upside down. One phone call. You know, one doctor visit. You go expecting you know, to answer that phone like it was no big deal, or you went to that doctor's appointment thinking it was no big deal, and, they, and you hear something on the other end of the line, the other end of the phone, or that doctor gives you a report that just came out of nowhere, and then immediately, your world is flipped upside down, and you can imagine the emotion 
of that day, that moment. If you've ever been in that moment, that emotion, the, the withdrawal, the, 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 the fear, and if you can understand that, then you can understand where Mephibosheth is. This world is upside down. And years go by and nothing happens. Because what we know about Mephibosheth in chapter four, verse four, it ends. We don't hear anything else. Years go by. His legs are still broken. He's still crippled. He doesn't get help. And that's the sad, sad story of Mephibosheth. Until one day, an unlikely thing happened in his life. We fast forward to chapter 9, which is actually 15 to 20 years later. We go to chapter 9, and verse 1, David had not been king for that long, 15, 20 years. He had fought all the battles. He got rid of all the enemies. In fact, chapter 9, David is at the peak of his power. His approval rating was at 100%. Right, the, 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 the prosperity, the economy is humming along. Everything is going fantastic. And in chapter 9 and verse number 1, David is now reflecting. He's thinking. The Bible says in verse 1 that one day David asks, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Now, I'm sure that some of the servants and some of the people that heard the question was like, uh-oh, David is after somebody. Someone is going to die. You know, what, you know what's going to happen next? And David said, is anyone still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And I'm sure for most people, that was like, What? Are you kidding me? You, you want to show kindness? But that's so not normal. You're supposed to get rid of them. And unbeknownst to everyone, Jonathan and David, years and years before, had made a deal with each other. They made a promise, a covenant, an oath. And Jonathan talked to David years ago he said, Jonathan, and Jonathan knew that David was going to be king. Jonathan, Jonathan knew that he was never going to be king, that God was anointing him. He knew that. And the cool thing is Jonathan was okay with that because he was more concerned about God's kingdom than his own personal kingdom. And, and, and so he, he looked at David and he said, will you make a promise? When you become king, will you show kindness to me and my family? And David responded back to Jonathan. He said, as truly as the Lord lives, I will show kindness to you and to your family. And he made his promise, made his covenant that he would do this. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David begins to think about Jonathan's family. He wants to uphold that oath, that promise, that covenant. And he asked, is there anyone left 
in Saul's family? Did anyone that I can show kindness? Anybody still around? Can somebody Google search and look and get back with me and let me know if there's someone still alive? Because I want to show kindness. And so they, you know, they started looking. They found a guy named Ziba. Now, Ziba was one of the servants of King Saul. He'd been in retirement. They kind of pulled him out of retirement and said, hey, you should know that there's anyone alive in Jonathan's family. The Bible said in verse 3 that Ziba says, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. It, it was almost, when you're reading it, it's almost like Ziba was saying, yeah, there is a guy. But you don't want to have anything to do with him. He's a crippled man. He's broken. You really, you really don't want him, David. And, and why? Why would he say something like this? Well, back in this culture, in this day and age, you know, if you were considered, if you were crippled, you were actually worthless. There were, there were no ADA compliances, right? There were no handicap, handicap ramps. There were no handicapped parking spaces. There, there were no um, wheelchairs. None of that existed. So if you were crippled, you were, you were almost considered like a burden in this society. You couldn't help yourself. And remember, this was a, this was a survival you know, society. I mean, you, you, you eat, you live to eat, you serve and work to, you know, to live. You know, you didn't have a Walmart. You had to, you know, you live off the land. And if you didn't do a good job working that day, then you didn't eat. And, and you know, you took care of the family that you had, let alone somebody else that couldn't carry his weight, that couldn't pick up his weight. And, and, and that's what Zyber was like. Man, there's a guy, but, you know, he's he going to be a burden to you. You don't want him. But David, in this story, he still pushed to know where he is. He said, well, I want to know where he is. Where's the kid? Ziba said, well, he's out in a village called Lodabar. Lodabar. Now, if you're taking notes, Lodabar means a place of no bread. It's an impoverished place, a dry, arid place, remote. It's out in the boondocks. It's on the other side, on the other side, on the other side of the track. The only people living in Lodabar were people that were hiding from someone or something. There was a reason for living in Lodabar, and that was to be under the radar. And you can almost say that Mephibosheth had been placed in the witness protection program. He's a fugitive. He's hiding out from the execution sword of the king. Mephibosheth. Now, I find it interesting about Mephibosheth. In First Chronicles chapter 8, you don't have to go there, but it's, it's, a, it's a genealogy. You know those genealogies, the one that you speed read through. You know, you hit that chapter and say, okay, I'm going to read it really fast, you know. And, uh, it, you know, it talks about the people that were born, and they gave a son, and then they lived X amount of years, and then they died. And then the next person, it's just on and on and on and on, and you kind of read through there. And in First Chronicles chapter 8, it's a long list of names of the 
genealogy of King Saul. And what we see here, we actually don't see Mephibosheth in that list, but we actually see his real original name, Maribel. That was Mephibosheth's original name, which means an opponent of Baal, uh, 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 an enemy of Baal, a warrior against Baal. Now, Baal was the false prophet, or I'm sorry, the false god that people worshipped that you saw throughout the Old Testament. And it was like Jonathan, when he named his son, Mary Baal, he said, hey, you are a warrior. You are a fighter. You fight against false gods. You are stately. You are a royal. You are my son, Mary Baal. But somewhere along the line, Mary Baal's name changed to Mephibosheth which means a son of shame. Huh. He went from a stately, powerful name to a name that means shameful thing, the son of shame. So you're five years old, imagine. You lose your father, you lose your grandfather, your legs become broken. Those whom you thought you could trust, you can't trust. You're taken away from a palace. You're left out in this remote village called Lodabar, a place of no bread. Your name is changed from Maribel, an opponent of Baal, to Mephibosheth, a man of shame. And all of this is happening. And regardless, David is hearing all this, and David says, so? Bring him to me. Go get him. Go get Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth, we've been about 20, 25 years old now. He's minding his own business, sitting in his recliner chair, thinking that he is far away removed from anybody thinking about him. When all of a sudden he hears the door knock. He can't answer the door because he's crippled. I'm sure he's just shouted out to come on in. And Ziba showed up and said, hey, I'm here to take you to the palace. King David wants to see you. Now let me ask you, let me ask you this. Is this a good day for Mephibosheth? Is he thinking, all right, it's about time. About time someone got me out of the dump. It's about time I got back here. You know, is this a good day for my football death? I don't think so. I'm sure he's thinking in his mind, oh man, they found me. You know, I'm dead. And, and, and King David wants to see me? Man, I hate King David. He's the reason I'm here. It's David's fault that I'm out here in this desolate place. It's David's fault that my legs are broken. It's David's fault that I'm a fugitive. It's David's fault, and, and he wants me dead, and he wants to see me. He wants to see me. No, I'm not interested. But Ziba said, the king wants to see you. 
And this is where the story takes an unlikely turn from a biblical We see here in verse number six. When it came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. And he replied, hey, I am your servant. In other words, I am your slave. He said, don't be afraid, David said. I'm sure Mephibosheth, as he's bowing low, he's shaking. And he's also expecting, you know, this is all a trick. They got me here. They got me bowing down pretty low. Now where's the sword? All right. Where's my head about to roll away? He's probably expecting all that. David said, hey, 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 hey. Don't be afraid. And then he said, I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. And Mephibosheth, he bowed respectfully in his claim. Who is your servant? That you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me. By the way, back then, dogs were not considered pets in people's homes. They were scavengers. Nobody would dare have a dog in their house. Uh, that was the, the way it was back then. I uh, didn't dress him up in little cute outfits and take him for a walk and, you know, and, and, and people didn't walk around with their little uh, plastic baggies and uh, nobody did this kind of stuff for a dog, okay? I mean, dogs were dogs. They were, uh. My people said, the man, I'm a dead dog. I'm, I'm lower than just a, a dog. I'm the dead dog. Why do we want to have anything to do with me? See, Mephibosheth, he felt worthless. Have you ever found yourself at a place where you feel worthless? You feel like you're not worthy? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you are, you ever feel inadequate for what's in front of you? And here's Mephibosheth. He sees himself as worthless. But David continues to bless him. He continues to bless him. Check it out in verse 9. And then the king, he summoned Saul's servant, Ziba. And he said, hey, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are going to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he's going to eat here at my table. And then he said, by the way, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. David gave Mephibosheth all of King Saul's land not like this little garden in the backyard in that back little corner. No, no, all of his land that he once had. And then David tells Ziba that he and his family and servants, all 35 of them, will now serve Mephibosheth. And then I love this in verse 11. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly 
at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Now four times in this chapter, we see a reference that Mephibosheth was invited to sit at the king's table. Four times. This kid, from five years old, having all this bad stuff happening to him, all these terrible things, all these years, all of a sudden, we see this beautiful story of restoration. Here's, here's what I'm hoping that you're seeing this story today. I told all that to tell you this. I hope that you see the picture of the gospel being painted all over. You see, when you see David, you see the heart of God. When, when you see Mephibosheth, you see the sinfulness and the brokenness of humanity. And when you see this whole story, you see grace expounded in such a beautiful way, the grace that God wants to extend to all of us. You see, my friend, we're all, all of us, we're like Mephibosheth, all of us. I will give you three quick thoughts about how we're like Mephibosheth if you're taking notes. Number one, we are fallen and we are broken. We are fallen and we are broken. Perhaps you're not fallen and broken physically, but every single one of us here today were fallen and were broken spiritually. The Bible says in Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned, and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. In the same way that Mephibosheth had fallen and was broken, we too are fallen and broken. We have brought shame into our own lives. We're shameful people because of our sin. We are fallen and broken. We deserve to live in a place called Lodabar. We don't deserve nothing. But point number two, how are we like Mephibosheth? Well, we're pursued by the king. That's grace, my friend. We're pursued by the king. David pursued after Mephibosheth, and that's what God had done for us in our own salvation. He pursued us in spite of our brokenness, in spite of what we can offer, of what we can offer to the offer on the table. A, a, a newsflash, we have nothing to offer. We're broken, we're simple, we are, we are, we are bankrupt. But the king still pursues you and me just like he pursued my Bibleshed. Bible said in John chapter 3, verse 17, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. See, my friend, we don't deserve to know God. We haven't earned God's favor, but God still pursuing us. And if you're here today and you're fallen and broken, I hope you understand that there's a loving 
God in heaven who loves you so much who sent his only son Jesus into this world to die on the cross for your sin. He did it for you. He's in an all-out love pursuit for you. Fallen and broken and were pursued by the king. And thought number three on this. The king table. It covers our sins. Oh man, I love this. This may be my favorite point of the whole thing. Like I already said here, four different times, the Bible said that Mephibosheth ate regularly at the table. In verse 11, he said he ate at the table like one of the king's, like one of the king's own son. You see, when he sat at the king's table, it's important for us to know that when he sat there, when he sat at the table, his crippled, broken condition was covered by the table. When people saw Mephibosheth, they didn't see a broken man. They saw a man who was a position, a man of power, a man who had assets, a man who was adopted into the family like one of the king's own sons. They didn't see the brokenness because the brokenness was covered by the table. You see, my friend, in the same way, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his blood that was shed for us covers our spiritually broken condition. And we are made whole, we are made complete at the king's table. All because Jesus sacrificed on the cross. Jesus sacrificed on the cross covers our sins in the same way that the table covered Mephibosheth, broken condition. You see, you are made whole. We're made complete. Underneath the power of Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness of our sin, we too are made like one of the king's own sons. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22. He said, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and to drink at my table in my kingdom. God has brought us to his table. He's given us the riches of every spiritual blessing in Jesus. At one time, we were the enemies of God, but he pursued us, chased after us in spite of our brokenness, and we can become the sons and daughters of the king. Chapter 9, 2 Samuel, verse 13, and Mephibosheth, who was crippled on both feet, he lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. You know, you can almost insert your name. You can almost insert your name there instead of Mephibosheth. And Karen and Donna, Mary Rose, all of us who was broken now eat regularly at the king's table. Because we were fallen, we were broken, but we were pursued by the king. 
and he invites us to sit at the table. He invites us to invite him into his life, allow his sacrifice on the cross to forgive us of our sins and recover all of our sins. That's grace. That's salvation. You come just as you are. You come to the table just as you are. You know what we do sometimes? Sometimes we say, oh, I've been invited to, to sit at, at the king's table. I'm broken. Well, I'm not going there until I get fixed. I'm not, growing. I'm not going there until I get my legs fixed. My friend, you'll never get a fix. You'll always be broken. You might as well come and sit at the table. The ball's in your court. We've been invited. We're chosen to sit there where you do it. Let me give you a couple of takeaways. Takeaway number one. Maybe you don't know Jesus. And today, you want to sit at this table. Today, you want to say, you know what, God, I take your salvation. Forgive me of my sins. And give me a new life. Maybe that's your takeaway. The other takeaway, you see a question I put on your handout. Who do I need to offer grace and to allow them to sit at the table in my life? Who do I need to offer grace? And I believe that this message is especially appropriate to our culture and to our society. Because everywhere we turn, there is ungrace, a lack of grace, everywhere. We see condemnation, we see judgment, we see it on the left, we see it on the right, we see it among everybody that we know. Ungrace. And here's the deal. The reason so many people are graceless is because they've never been graceful. They've never experienced grace. It's impossible to give away something that you've never had. And the Bible commands us to be gracious to others. But if you've never experienced where grace begins, it's pretty hard to give it away. God wants us to understand his grace. And when the grace of God invades someone's life, it becomes contagious. You can't help yourself but to offer grace. It may not be easy. It may be a challenge. I'm not saying that it flips on a dime, but man, we can get there because of the grace that was once bestowed on us. We cannot help but give it and express it to others. And so who do I need to offer grace this week and allow them to sit at the table with me? David, King David, the shepherd king, understood the grace of God. And because the grace of God had taken root in his life, he began to pour it out to others. David was a gracious person. And Mephibosheth's life but never the same. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us today. There's so many applications that you might be speaking to in our lives. We might hear this story in different ways, but God, I know that you're working. I know you're communicating that to us. And God, I know that in one way that you're speaking, and you might be speaking to a person that never, have never asked you to come into his life. 
They've never asked you to come into his life. They've never asked for your forgiveness. They're broken. They're fallen. They're being pursued by you, but for whatever reason, we ignore you. He or she been putting you off. Maybe they've been like, maybe the, the excuse that they want to fix themselves before they come to the table. But God, I pray that today that they will see that there is nothing that we can do to receive your love. You love us regardless of who we are. You love us in spite of our sin. You love us. And so God, maybe today, there's someone that just need to ask you into their heart. Maybe there's someone here that today they need to come to the table and be covered by your blood, by your sacrifice on the cross, to be forgiven be forgiven of our past sin, be forgiven of our present sin, to be forgiven for our future sin, to be forgiven once and for all. And he says, God, you're talking to me today. No one's looking, but he says, God, you're talking to me. I'm broken. And I don't know Jesus. I've never asked Jesus to come to my life. The Bible said all you have to do is call upon the name of Jesus and you shall be saved. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through anybody. You go to God. You can go to God on your own behalf. And he's listening right where you are. In the silence of your heart, you can ask God to come in your heart. And I can help you, lead you what I call the sinner's prayer. A prayer that goes like this. And if this is you, say, God, I want to know Jesus. You can pray this prayer in the silence of your heart. You don't have to pray it out loud, but in the silence of your heart. The Lord hears. You can say, dear God, I know I'm fallen. I know I'm broken. And I've been putting you off long enough. And today, I want to sit at the table. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to accept your salvation. I want to be a child of God. I want to go to heaven when I die. Thank you for coming to my life. Thank you for dying on the cross. For my sins. And no one's looking around. It's just, God, I prayed that prayer. Never done that before. Well, maybe I thought I did, but now today I mean it with all of my heart. Will you raise your hand? No one's looking. I'm not going to embarrass you. We had one person earlier in the first service. There anyone like that here today? There's one hand over here. Anyone else? God, we ask you to help us today. Thank you for the decisions that were made. Perhaps, God, there's some things that you're working in our hearts. God, I pray that we will think about who we need to offer grace, just like David did to my people, Seth. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.